Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Eric Luna, founder of the Academy for Justice and the Emilia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law here at Arizona State University. And you're listening to Measured Justice. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law that aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. As part of our new series, Leaders and Legends in Criminal Justice Reform, we continue our discussion with our special guest, Pat Nolan, Director Emeritus of the American Conservative Union Foundation's Nolan Center for Justice. In the last episode, we discussed Pat's childhood, his rise through the ranks of the GOP, and his subsequent downfall. Today, we will walk through his time in prison, how it changed his outlook on incarceration, and led to the second half of his career, becoming a nationally recognized advocate for criminal justice reform. Pat Nolan, again, thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you. You had uh, grown up as a practicing Catholic, still are. You had a uh, had grown up with people who were blue collar and and had been white collar. You had been around folks of different races and different uh, nationalities, and um, and this that pushed one way. Of course, there was in the background until until the experience the the notion that the criminal justice system, the one way ratchet, seemed the solution was to criminalize or to use the police. And then you uh, are faced off with this prosecution, this no win scenario. Sometimes it seems like, and you're incarcerated. This seems like an, it's almost a, a a formula for cognitive dissonance, right? So many different, yeah. and you're incarcerated and you're thinking about getting out. What are you thinking about the system and what are you thinking about doing given everything that had happened uh, at that point? Yeah. First, uh, you mentioned my faith and um, uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, you know, God speaks to us in different ways. And uh, a dear friend of mine with a, his wife and kids uh, before I surrendered to prison, drove seven hours up to spend an afternoon with us. And it was delightful. We were in the backyard uh, cooking hamburgers and hot dogs. And uh, he said to me, you know, Pat, um, for centuries, Catholics have left uh, the day-to-day world, prayed and studied their faith uh, and uh, did humiliating work. He said, we we call that uh, monastery. He said, view this time in prison as your monastic experience. And that was so helpful to go in thinking that I could use the time to grow closer to God. And, um, you know, I I was uh, a practicing Catholic. I was proud of my faith, but it was external. It's, um, it was like I had a beautiful coat, <laughs> like Joseph's coat of many colors. Uh, I wore my religion proudly, but in prison, it uh, I took it inside my heart 
And uh, I saw God active all around me in different circumstances that I would have uh, not caught on that it was God acting. And I tell people I went into prison believing in God and came out knowing him. And, and that was so helpful uh, in dealing with the humiliation and, uh, uh, and the uh, other um, uh, privations, the absence from my family. Uh, the difficulty of them coming to visit, especially when I was transferred to a prison camp in uh, Washington uh, State. But uh, it, uh, my faith sustained me through that. And, uh, you know, prison is a very dark place. The devil owns it. He stops the hallways and cells. But uh, the faith activities, I, I went to every uh, Christian faith, Southern Baptist, uh, Methodist, um, uh, you know, Catholic, uh, Lutheran, because that was the only place there was light in that dark place. And um, in the fellowship that we felt uh, in inside um, was very touching. And uh, I learned a lot from them and think it was able to help them in their walk, too. And this would inform this would inform your your thoughts and your your approach going forward. Your release, you served about two years, right? Is that is that a, is that about right? Yeah, a little over two years. And, and you, let's, let me let's, give let's you an example to, of sure, let me please. give you an example of my changing thoughts. What led to it? Walter Cronkite, in fact, did a story on it. But there was a woman in the women's prison who was in for drugs, as uh, most are, and. Um, uh, she had what, what's referred to as the girlfriend penalty. Uh, the man she was sleeping with, living with, um, was a drug dealer. And um, she took two messages. To, she wasn't involved in any of the sales. Two messages of people. You call so-and-so. That was it. But, of course, he, in order to get a lesser sentence, uh, said, oh, she was involved at every step of it. And the prosecutors argued, and she benefited from the lifestyle uh, that they were living. And um, anyway, she got, uh, I think, a 10-year sentence where he got six months <laughs> for selling her out. Uh, while she was incarcerated, she was on the phone with her mother, who lived locally. And um, her mother began screaming. Someone had broken into her home and uh, assaulted her, and her her daughter in prison got the attention of the guards. And uh, fortunately, the, the ones that would care and do something a lot wouldn't have. They would have just ignored her, uh, from my experience. But this one called the local police. The police went out, uh, barged into the apartment, and caught her in the him in the act of raping her mother. He was arrested, tried, and convicted and walked free while her daughter, who had been marginally involved with drugs because of her boyfriend, was still in prison. So he had a, vi a violent criminal that did far less time than this woman. How, and, how, does, how, does, someone, how does someone even, in, when they're in prison, how does someone even wrap their heads around that? Yeah, that was such a clear example of how misguided our laws are uh, that, uh, you know, um, it, it, it was searing because I knew, of course, my own circumstance 
Uh, but here I knew that. And, you know, her sentence was so much longer. You know, um, uh, the harm done to society by her was so small compared to the toll it took on her life. Whereas the rapist, the harm he did to society was so great, and yet it was judged by the law less of a problem, deserved lesser punishment. That was just such a glaring example, and I can go into others. So, that, so you've uh, seen you've seen both. You saw the the kind of the the in your own case, you got to see how the levers of sure and incentives would lead someone to be end up uh, pleading out. And of course, the system now you got to see that the system is a mass production kind of deal. Oh yes. And and then and then you go into the prison environment, you you see folks, you see the, you hear about these stories, you see the actual, uh, what it is like to live in uh, 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 behind bars, what it's like to be incarcerated. You are released now and you have a, these insights. You didn't lose the, 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 um, the experience and the wisdom that you had prior to this, but now you have this kind of uh, additional understanding or greater understanding or a new appreciation and a new uh, lease on life. And yes, uh, what was what, what was what was the, tell us what the steps were there and 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 how it progressed. Yeah. Well, first of all, this is another example of how God uh, works. That um, you know, things uh, happen far beyond uh, anything we could plan. It's a. I say God's like a powerful wave. And we're just surfing on it. You know, if we stay focused on him, it's an exciting ride, far better than any we could think of in design. Um, I, uh, I was two weeks from being released and I got a call. Uh, and, uh, you know, they don't take calls for prisoners. They're not an answering service. But the guard called me to Control A and I lived in Control. I lived in Unit B. So that would normally be some disciplinary thing. And they were on me all the time about just little stuff, trying to find uh, things to, uh, you know, take away privileges from me. Uh, and it wasn't just me, you know, it was all, all the prisoners. And it was the meanest guard. But uh, when I arrived at the cage, uh, he uh, said, Nolan, we got a call for you. And he extended his hand with a little post-it note that said Jim Schrader prison fellowship and a number and he said I told him that you were a child but uh, you'd call him back but it's got to be collect because you can only do collect calls from the prison so I went and called him and uh, Jim said uh, uh, you know I'm with prison fellowship Chuck Colson heard you speak I've been allowed out uh, to uh, talk uh, at a fundraiser for prison fellowship, the chaplain had taken me and a few others. And I talked about the benefit, the blessing that uh, Angel Tree, which are gifts, prison fellowship gives to the children of prisoners. And and so he said, Chuck heard you speak. He, he thought, and he knows your background because Ed Meese told him all about you. And uh, we've been looking for a president for justice fellowship, which is the policy arm of prison fellowship works on criminal justice reform would be you be interested in working <laughs> for us becoming president and ceo 
of Justice Fellowship. I said, sure. And uh, (laughs) um, I was at the halfway house when they arranged, the board wanted me to come back to a board meeting uh, to interview. And the uh, Department of Corrections refused to approve it. Now, it's allowed if you're going for a job. But they said it did not serve a legitimate penological purpose. Okay. Now, here I am, (laughs) a chance of a job with a prison-oriented ministry, and they say it does not suit a penological. But, again, God intervened. The board said, okay, if they won't let him come to us, we'll send a delegation out there. And they sent five board members out to interview me. And they did an interesting thing. They invited my wife, Gail, to come with me to the interview. And that was so important because this would be a major change. We'd have to move back east to the D.C. area. It would affect uh, Gail and the children, um, uprooting and not only from my family and her family, uh, but also uh, I would be on the road a lot uh, for them, uh, you know, uh, for Justice Fellowship. And uh, it was a wonderful interview, and they hired me. And uh, when Gail told her brother about it, you know, here, here this job knit together my experience as a lawyer, my leadership in the legislature, and my time in prison. And when she told her brother about it, he said, this is a made-up job, isn't it? Because <laughs> it was just so perfect uh, for me. And uh, so uh, I, I came back and Immediately when I got there, there was a huge challenge I had to wade into, which was Harry Reid was trying to limit the religious rights of prisoners. And, you know, one of the things in the legislature, I thought, well, you know, even an atheist warden would encourage people to have a faith because it leads to a moral conscience and, you know, it, it's, it exhibits that they it's the world's not all about them, but, you know, they've got to be person following God's law and the government's laws. Anyway, in prison, I saw they did all they could to discourage it, not because of animosity to religion, but it's more work for them. So they'd rather just find excuses to cancel religious services. Anyway, so we waited in. Chuck and I, uh, uh, you know, went to the Hill. Uh, John Ashcroft, who was then in the Senate. Uh, and Dan Coates, who was in the Senate, put together a breakfast with 12 senators. Uh, we strategized uh, 12 uh, Republican and Democrat senators. We strategized how to try to stop Harry Reid's effort. Uh, I organized a press conference. Uh, and this is something I learned in the legislature. I always tried to get people, uh, sort of the bedposts, different sides, agreeing on an issue. And so we got Teddy Kennedy and John Ashcroft to speak uh, at this press conference uh, in front of the Capitol saying how important religious uh, freedom was for prisoners. And, uh, you know, the press ate it up because, you know, Ashcroft and uh, Kennedy didn't agree on much, but they did on this. And uh, so then, uh, you know, we engaged, we you know, I, I made a, a, a good connection, not only with other re- reform groups, but also 
conservatives. Chuck had credibility, and I did, with the national conservative movement. So they would uh, work with us on reforms. And we built a, um, a group of conservative leaders uh, who were interested in criminal justice reform. Uh, Grover Norquist of uh, Americans for Tax Reform, uh, the famous No Tax Pledge. Um, Brent Bozell of the Media Research Center. Richard Vigory, who is sort of the godfather of political uh, direct mail fundraising. David Keene, uh, president of the NRA. Um, you know, top-notch people that I'd known through politics, but they became sort of a brain trust working with us to give us credibility with Republicans who are always fearful of being viewed as soft on crime and, and instead, uh, you know, giving them assurance that what we were doing wouldn't result in more criminality, but less. Uh, from there, we went on uh, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which a lot of people said, oh, we wouldn't touch. Ted Kennedy had tried to uh, pass it several times that it failed. And in uh, one of the left-right coalition meetings, uh, they said, oh, we want Arlen Specter to uh, be the co-sponsor with Kennedy. And I said, you know, uh, uh, Arlen is a good guy, but he's not trusted by the Republicans. He's too liberal. You needed a rock rib conservative. I said, I think uh, Jeff Sessions is your guy. He was a former attorney general of uh, Alabama. Uh, he's viewed as a strong conservative in the Senate. Uh, and they said, oh, he'll never do it. He'll, well, I contacted Jeff and he was a little reluctant at first, but he agreed. It was a moral issue. And people had told me when I got to Washington, oh, don't, don't bring up the morals. This is just dollars and cents. That's what appeals to people. Well, I found exactly the opposite, saying that it's a stain on our reputation as a nation that people in the custody of the government are raped under the nose of officials and, in fact, raped sometimes by correctional officers. That is a moral issue that needs to be addressed. Well, Sessions agreed. And again, I put together a press conference with uh, Kennedy and Sessions. And Sessions said something there that really zeroed in the moral issue. He said, I've sent thousands of people to prison for horrible crimes, but not one of those sentences included being raped. And people had told us it was impossible, it would never pass. People at the Bureau of Prisons sneered and said, huh, this is a joke. Uh, even the fundraising people of prison fellowship said, oh, it's an uncomfortable subject. We don't want to bring it up. Well, we did. Chuck said, no, Pat's right. We're going to make an issue of this. And uh, we got uh, a 44% return on a mailing we did to prison fellowship supporters with uh, cards filled out to their legislator saying, we insist you pass this important legislation. We delivered them to the Capitol. And of course, we lobbied the members. And it ended up passing unanimously through both houses. And, you know, and again, people have said it was impossible. Nobody cares about prisoners. But when you present it right, these are human beings. 
And no human being, no matter what they've done, deserves to be raped, as Jeff Sessions says. That, uh, that's a powerful message. And, and we've worked on other things uh, since then uh, with that same group of conservatives. We formed a, a group called Right on Crime, which is uh, very, very effective uh, at organizing conservatives. And it, uh, we've been able to create an environment where it's safe for Republicans and conservatives to advocate for reforms in the system. Now, we've run into a problem lately because the far left prosecutors say they're reformists, but they're really revolutionaries. You know, they let violent criminals go and instead go after business people, um, gun owners, uh, churches. <laughs> that's where they put the power of their prosecutor's office. And that's not reform. That's, uh, and, and they refuse to enforce many of the laws that are passed. You know, they're supposed to apply the law, not make their own. So that's proved difficult for us because uh, conservative legislators say, well, uh, you know, this is all part of that left-wing, crazy, woke prosecution stuff. And we, we have to disabuse them of that. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, made, it's, it's, it's made our job more difficult. You raised some good points, Pat. And let me, if you don't mind, follow follow up. And, and I would, would mention here that not only had you been involved in, among other pieces of legislation, um, uh, Second Chance Act, uh, the First Step Act, uh, you've been involved in a, a series of, of kind of important pieces of legislation that have come out of, uh, been bipartisan in nature for the most part, and have uh -huh. uh, have come out over the past decade plus. Um, and uh, so there, there has been this sense that of a more uh, that the environment is more amenable to consider uh, reforms of the criminal justice system, and that uh, even though maybe the federal system isn't the um, uh, isn't the home of most people who are uh, prosecuted or arrested, prosecuted, and convicted, it nonetheless can be a model for others. the 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 question that you raised by your comments is whether or not reform is a kind of one directional, uh, always moving towards some uh, monolithic end, or whether or not it is a kind of pendulum that moves back and forth. And there is this sense, so, to some extent, that the reforms that had come over the past couple of decades, others are would, would dismiss some of that comment as maybe uh, um, premature, uh, that there hasn't been a, a cause and effect proven between uh, the bumps in, for example, certain types of crime and certain particular policies. Uh, and then there are some in the middle who just don't know. And they recognize they've seen the pendulum swing back and forth. And that to almost use a, a religious metaphor, Pat, um, since we've used those before, that if there was going to be this criminal justice reformation, there inevitably was going to be a counter-reformation, wasn't there? And yes, that's, <laughs> that's that. a very good analogy. Could you talk to us about what you see for the future in this sphere? Uh, is there, yeah. is it going to be back and forth forever in a kind of, kind of uh, uh, Hegelian dialectic, back and forth, back and forth, or is it instead that there is some kind of sweet spot, some kind of Goldilocks zone that we can find with criminal justice that recognizes uh, both that uh, the criminal justice is a necessary evil, but it, it is an evil. That that that's a very interesting point. Uh, I think I come down on uh, sort of the Hegelian dialectic uh, because uh, 
when I was still at Prison Fellowship, Mark Early uh, was the president of Maine PF, and he'd been a state senator in Virginia and uh, attorney general of Virginia. He and I were very close. And uh, he and I both said, we're just one bad event away from having our support eroded. Uh, one person released under the reforms that um, did a horrible crime. Uh, and uh, people... A Willie Horton moment. Yes, freeze up. In fact, uh, Mike Huckabee, who is governor of Arkansas, was terrific on restorative justice. In fact, uh, he had me come out and had a, 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 a day-long session with judges and legislators on how to apply restorative justice in Arkansas. He had pardoned a guy that had been um, uh, the gardener at the governor's mansion. And, you know, the guy was uh, terrific. He was, you know, uh, seemed totally great. He went out to Washington State and killed a cop. You know, there was nothing in his background that showed that kind of violence. But, you know, that did great damage. And uh, in my opinion, derailed Mike Huckabee's campaign for president. That was such uh, a difficult thing. What, 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 what can you learn from that, Pat? Because that is, we're kind of at that that point where, as you said, the the prison fellowship and the work that you had done with others, right on crime, other organizations, had made it um, uh, had made it safe for for some on the right or or the 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 uh, the, uh, the center right or even on the more conservative edge of 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 of, of the right to be have uh, to be able. Uh, to be in favor of reforms, to be able to think about decriminalization or to be thinking about different type of uh, approaches to incarceration. Um, does this, is this a, um, uh, is, is this now the challenge that, that, that to try to be able to continue this since we're now at a point where there is some pushback? Uh, yes, but uh, part of it is educating the public because uh, even the Willie Horton situation, of course, it destroyed Dukakis's campaign. But in reality, there was never anything in Horton's background that showed the type of violence that he did when he was released. So uh, is the answer to lock everybody that does something bad forever? You know, to prevent them from ever doing something bad again? Of course... <laughs> not including any bad things they do inside the prison. No, uh, you know, it is, there are bad things, bad people who do bad things, but there are also people who are transformed. And uh, it's a, uh, I mean, you look at Chuck Colson and me, you know, right. uh, uh, we're uh, convicted felons. Um, uh, would Should we have been locked up forever? That would be a loss in, as well as to many others on throughout uh, the various professions uh, across humanity in oh yeah and and, and across and you mentioned space, across politics you mentioned the first step act you know Matthew Charles was the first person released under the uh, the reform of crack powder laws in the first step act uh, he's devoted his entire life now to um, mentoring. Uh, young prisoners and helping them get back on their feet. Of those uh, that were released uh, 
under the uh, CARE Act uh, with COVID, only 17%, and this is thousands of people, only 17% have returned to prison. Wow, that's astounding. That's great news because usually it's some, you know, uh, 40 plus percent, uh, ranging up to some states 70%. So that that's good news, but people don't talk about it. So uh, I think one of the things we need to do is educate people that people can turn their lives around. Uh, now, I've found this over time, that religious people are much more open to this. They believe in redemption. And, uh, you know, uh, Jesus died once for all, <laughs> everybody. And uh, at Prison Fellowship, we used to say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners saved by grace. So, you know, that it's easier to get uh, religious people, both uh, Christian, but also all of the Jewish Orthodox organization is wonderful on these issues. Uh, we, we work and very indeed, close. Indeed, most faiths have some sense, good faiths, uh, the, the, the decent faiths of the world, which are all recognized and, and practiced strongly in the United States. All of them have some kind of redemptive uh, yes or some type of understanding for mercy and forgiveness. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, it's a balance. Of course, there needs to be accountability. There needs to be consequences, but we don't want to destroy the lives of those that have erred. And especially if they've shown that they've turned their life around, let's give them a chance. Uh, you know, that's why uh, one of the bills we passed was the Second Chance Act, to try to shift prisons from being warehouses of humans to uh, being preparing the inmates for return to the community. 95% of the prisoners will serve their sentence and be released to the community. We better care about, you know, uh, what happens when they get out. Uh, as Chuck Colson said, you know, we can't cage people up and treat them like dogs and then expect them to be good neighbors when they're released. So, you know, part of it is working uh, with those in prison uh, to try to transform their lives. You mentioned the First Step Act, and I wanted to mention how important it was, and, and really, I think it was a God thing. Ten years before uh, Trump was elected, I'd been contacted by Gary Bauer, uh, who heads up American Values. I'd known him when he was domestic policy advisor uh, under President Reagan, and um, we'd stayed in touch. He called me and said that there was a family that was distraught uh, because the father had just been sent to prison and they're Orthodox Jews and they were afraid that their father wouldn't be able to, and husband, wouldn't be able to keep kosher. Uh, I'd seen that myself. Uh, there was a Jew with us that they oftentimes denied him the kosher meals that he should have been entitled to. And they were afraid that... Uh, in the Orthodox Jewish faith, a minion is uh, 12 adult males who get together and pray, and that has uh, more impact than individual prayer. Sort of like Jesus said to us, uh, when two or more are gathered in my name, so, so it is for them, but they need 12. And they were afraid, as has happened in prisons, that they would deliberately 
put them in units where there were less than 12 so that they couldn't form a minion. So I, uh, I said, of course, I'd meet with them, and I did. Uh, the mother uh, was uh, just a sweet lady and just clearly disconsolate over her husband going to the prison. Uh, their three sons and their wives or girlfriends were with them. Uh, I explained that because of our work beating back Harry Reid's uh, efforts that, uh, and I might say it was challenged in court three times and uh, we won. I organized amicus briefs on behalf uh, of the law so that they would be protected uh, the same as any other person's First Amendment rights. Uh, I said I was the ideal person to help and I explained how to get uh, a, a package and you're allowed to package once a year and also how to get uh, Passover uh, supplies into uh, the father. And then I offered a prayer with them and uh, they, they, it was very warm. We uh, hugged afterwards and it, it was very meaningful. Well, you know, uh, that's one of the blessings of having been in prison and experienced what I did that I can help people like that that are uh, distraught about a loved one in prison. And uh, anyway, I didn't think anything about it. Ten years later, uh, I turn on my computer and there's a picture of Trump uh, in the lobby of Trump Tower announcing that his son-in-law would be joining the campaign. And I called to my wife, Gail, Gail, come in. Remember that family I met with at Dulles Airport? Well, that's Trump's son-in-law. So I sent him an email and said, I don't know if you remember me, but I met with your uh, mom and your brothers. And, um, you know, I work on criminal justice reform. I'd like to help you formulate the policy on that. He wrote me back to me and said, Pat, of course I remember you. You gave me hope when I had none. And uh, so after the election, he invited me into the White House, him and his assistant, me and David Safavian, who now is uh, running the ACU Center. Uh, and we talked, uh, and, you know, he said, well, it'll be difficult to get reforms through. And then I said, but, you know, Jared, we owe it to the families of prisoners so they don't go through what we have gone through. And he said, you know, that's right. And so we began work on the First Step Act, and I organized a group of conservatives, uh, um, uh, Jared arranged a lunch in the White House mess for us, and uh, we strategized, and, uh, and you know that led to a lot of conservative support. Uh, and th that legislation was called "Dead on Arrival." Many times, at every step of the way, uh, the establishment thought they would have killed it. Well, uh, you know, we overcame that, and uh, as the film First Step" shows. It was a coalition between left and right. Van Jones was, you know, just a hero for how he took a lot of gas from the ideological left, but said, yes, we can work with Trump on trying to improve the system. And so it passed with overwhelming votes from both parties and was signed by the president. But it's the that long work and the reputation of conservatives being willing to work 
with liberals. And it wasn't just Van Jones, Hakeem Jeffries, the new uh, Democrat leader in the House, who ignored the pressure from the left and worked. It truly was, uh, as the Bible says, the lamb and the lion shall lie down together. It was a joint effort. And that's how we can make progress. But it takes, to your question about the pendulum, it takes continual education. One of the key points to make is the humanity of those involved in crime, both the offender and the victim, the humanity. And uh, you mentioned uh, conveyor belt. That's absolutely right. Justice should not be a conveyor belt running files through. These are human beings whose lives are affected. We call it lawbreaking, but in reality, it's victim harming. You identify who harmed the victim, how the victim was harmed, and how to make up for that harm. That's the true vision of justice. And so long sentence for a crime that there's no identified victim is just insanity. And yet we, att- we apply that consistently. And that's filled our jails with people who are no threat to any of us, but uh, you know, ha- have broken our laws, especially drug laws. One of the things we say is prisons for people is for people we're afraid of, not folks who are just mad at. And unfortunately, we filled them with a lot of folks who are just mad at. Uh, you also mentioned that uh, the federal system, while it's important, is really a minor part of the justice system. That's true. So we work in all of the states doing the same thing. And frankly, we've had far more success in the states than we do at the federal level. And uh, again, putting together bipartisan coalitions to work on these issues. And frankly, a lot of times it leads to other good things because once each side, you know, checks their guns at the door and sees, hey, these are nice people we can work with, uh, they, they don't just have politics on their agenda. They do want to uh, really improve the the, the life of people, uh, their constituents, then there can be real progress in other issues. So we're sort of a cutting edge leading to more uh, reforms, bipartisan reforms. That brings us to the end of our time today. Thank you for listening to part two of this month's podcast with our very special guest, Pat Nolan. We hope you've enjoyed the inaugural episodes of our series on the leaders and legends of criminal justice reform. And of course, I want to thank our guests for a terrific discussion. Pat Nolan, Director Emeritus of the American Conservative Union Foundation's Nolan Center for Justice. This product is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice.